This is Curl Up with a Cat Tale, and I'm Gwen Cooper, the New York Times bestselling author of numerous cat-centric titles, including Homer's Odyssey, A Fearless Feline Tale, or How I Learned About Love and Life with a Blind Wonder Cat, Spray Anything, More True Tales of Homer and the Gang, and The Book of Possum, Head Bonks, Raspy Tongues, and 101 Reasons Why Cats Make Us So, So Happy. We're here to celebrate all things feline and to tell inspirational cat tales. Let's get started. Hello, and welcome to an all-new episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. I'm, of course, Gwen Cooper, your host, and delighted as always to be here with you today. Later on in today's episode, I am going to be reading an excerpt from my book, My Life in a Cat House. And this is an excerpt I've actually only ever, well, twice. I've read this aloud twice. Once when I recorded the audiobook for My Life in a Cat House. And the day that the book launched back in 2018, I did a reading at my local bookstore, actually at my local pet store in conjunction with my local bookstore as a benefit for one of our local cat shelters. So, so all nice and local and, um, and, and definitely supporting independent bookstores and, and cats, two of my favorite things. And so I read this excerpt then, and those are the only two times that I've ever read this excerpt. Although I do love reading it because I actually think it's funny. I know that's a, it, it is bad as, as a writer to, I always feel that, that if I'm enjoying my own work too much, then I'm doing something wrong because I feel that, that part of the way you become a better writer is by never really thinking what you're writing is good and so always striving to make it better. That is, of course, also, by the way, a formula for just a lot of neurosis and (laughs) general unhappiness in life, so I'm not necessarily recommending it. but it's funny because I, I do enjoy reading this passage, or I did enjoy reading it the two times I read it, because I actually thought it was funny, and it is kind of a novel experience for me to enjoy something that I myself have written. So this is all by way of saying, I guess, that, that I'm going to be reading this, and uh, maybe you'll like it, and maybe you won't, but I like it. So hopefully you guys will enjoy it too. I've been getting such positive feedback on the readings that I do. You know, when as part of a podcast, I I do a reading or I read an excerpt from one of my books. Um, So I'm going to kind of go with that. And we'll see where it takes us. I'm not gonna. I'm not committing to doing this every episode or with any degree of regularity. Like I'm not, you know, I'm not saying that I'm going to do it once a week or once a month. Uh, But from time to time, I will do so and we'll see how it goes. And wow, that was a really long introduction. I, I think um I think possibly my brain is slightly frozen because folks, it is cold here today. I am recording this. It is nine degrees outside. And for this Miami Beach native, that is pretty cold. I feel like when it's nine degrees outside. That That's kind of nature's way of saying stay inside. Don't hang out outside today. And so that is what I'm going to do. Actually, the cat tonight, it's been really cold for for the last 24 hours. It's supposed to warm up a little bit later, but the cats and I have been spending a lot of time huddled up together under various blankets and comforters or, or on pillows Actually, Fanny, who who is we always say Fanny is is quite the Savannah kitty, and it can never be hot enough for Fanny. Fanny in the summer will still when it 
you know, and I, and I just talked about this before, we don't have central air or central heat in my 150-year-old house. So we have, uh, you know, we have uh, radiators for the heat, which I actually kind of enjoy, and I will get to that in a minute. And for air conditioning, we have wall units as opposed to central air. And so the point being that sometimes in the summer, when it gets really, really hot, when it's 95 degrees out, outside, there will be rooms inside where it is also nearly that hot because even if the air conditioning, let's say, is running while we're downstairs, upstairs, there's no air conditioning running. And so those rooms get really hot. And anyway, the point being that Fanny will seek out the hottest room in the house and then find a patch of sunlight coming in through the window for maximum heat. So even when it is in the high 90s or even the low hundreds outside, it's still not quite hot enough for Fanny who is always looking for for a way to make it even warmer. And so in the winter, what I do is she has this little schmata that she likes to – sorry, schmata means rag. She has this like, like kind of a little cat blankie that she likes to sleep on normally, and, and it goes on the floor. It's it's actually a reader sent this to us as a gift years ago, and and Fanny just fell in love with her fleecy little blankie, and and it is her, her favorite thing. And so I put it in front of, of the big radiator in the bedroom, and she just lies on the blanket right right in front of the radiator until her fur gets so hot that you touch her and you feel like you're going to burn your hand. That's how hot her fur gets. And so she kind of divides her time between that and then hanging out and cuddling under the covers with Clayton and me. So that's pretty much what our house has looked like for the last 24 hours is various degrees of me hanging out with the cats under the covers, the cats sleeping in front of the radiator, the cats sleeping on top of each other for warmth. And the house actually does get pretty warm when we turn on the heat, but it's still still not quite warm enough for everybody, myself included. Again, it is nine degrees outside and that is cold. Uh, the one upside, though, is that it is great weather for reading, which is what I have been doing. So I, I should probably preface this by saying I, I've actually embarked on a new reading project in 2022. And I should preface this by saying that I am kind of a compulsive shopper when it comes to buying books. I find it very easy to resist buying just about anything else, even things that I really want. I My tongue might loll out of my head, you know, like... <laughs> While I'm looking at a great pair of shoes or a gorgeous sweater or a piece of jewelry or something like that, but I'm very good about putting the brakes on and not buying what I don't really need or can't really justify or don't think I'm realistically going to wear or use anytime soon. I, you know, am not, even with all this time in, in lockdown, I know a lot of people have taken to redecorating their homes, which I totally get, but we have not bought anything new for our house, we we're, we're we're pretty good at keeping an eye on on the consumer spending and keeping that down, uh, which of course makes it easier for me to do things like donate books that I've written, you know, sell them, and then donate the, the sell autographed books is what I'm trying to say, and then donate the proceeds to charity. Um, so keeping an eye on the spending certainly helps with that. But the one thing that that is really my weakness and that I'm very bad about is is books. I'm a compulsive buyer of books. 
And I end up buying, you know, at this point, I have hundreds of books in my house that I have not yet read that I intend to read. And I have put a moratorium on buying any new books until I get substantially through the the giant to be read stack. It's not even really a stack. I mean, they're in bookshelves because it's it's just too many to be a stack. Um, but yeah, I I I buy a lot of books, and so what then ends up happening is when I go to select the next book I'm going to read, I, I get I, I think they call this um, you know choice fatigue or the anxiety that is created when you have too many options. And they've done studies on this. Like, for example, the more different varieties of ketchup that there are uh, in in a grocery store, the less likely it becomes that a typical consumer buys any ketchup at all because there are just so many choices that you become paralyzed in the process of trying to make a choice. That might sound silly, and I understand that ketchup is still a pretty low stakes, a low investment decision. But there is some psychological research to bear out the idea that the while options are nice to have, an, an excess of options uh, can lead to a kind of paralysis. And that definitely happens with me. I, I now have so many books to choose from to read, which is lovely, except I, I'm not sure what I should read next. And I always have this kind of anxious feeling that there should maybe be, instead of the book I've chosen, maybe it should be a different book. And maybe I would like that other book more, or maybe I would finish that other book faster so that I could then get onto a new book and make quicker headway through this giant stack of books that I have accumulated but not yet read. And and you can see where this kind of spins around <laughs> and becomes a little bit of craziness. So what I decided to do, and it, it's it struck me with remarkable simplicity uh, beginning this year, is to read alphabetically. So i going through the alphabet, and I read one book that be, whose title begins with that letter, and then I move on to the next book. So for example, my, my first book was An Autobiography by Anthony Trollope. And my next book was Burnt Sugar, and so on and and so forth. And so now I am down to uh, yesterday I was at G, the letter G. And I decided to pick up a novel by Marilyn Robinson called Gilead. Uh, But I actually have two novels by Marilyn Robinson that have been sitting on my shelf for quite a while. Uh, Gilead, which was published in – this was her second novel, and it was published in, I believe, 2008 – and Housekeeping, her first novel, published in 1980. So obviously, there was a very big gap between the the publication of these two books. And so I decided, because one began with G and one began with H, to kind of flip the order, read both of those books in sequence, but flip the order and do H before G, even though it was not strictly alphabetical, so that I could read them in the order in which they had been written. And I was really curious to read Housekeeping, because Housekeeping is one of those novels, every so often, and a writer kind of blazes out with a first novel that just makes the entire community of literary critics it makes their jaws drop and they start getting all this attention and all these prizes. And and this novel, Housekeeping, by Marilyn Robinson, is one of those novels. It was published in 1980. And it's one of those stories where Marilyn Robinson, the, the, the story behind how this novel came to be published was that for years she had just been scribbling notes longhand to herself and and realized that they were sort of taking the shape of a novel and a writer friend of hers asked to read them and she gave him you know just her longhand scribbles and he read them and and then showed them immediately to his agent and and so basically she she gave her her hand, handwritten scribbles 
to a writer friend. A week later, she had an agent. And a week after that, she had a publishing deal. And she was nominated for the Pulitzer Prize and, and won all of these other prizes and blah, 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 blah. Uh, kind of, kind of sick making, you know, for for someone like me, you just you hear stories like this, and they're such great stories, and they make you so envious of the talent behind them, which I think is part of the reason why I had resisted reading this book for so long, because when you're a writer reading other people's books, there, there's always that love hate relationship. You love reading great writing. But it also can have this tendency to make you feel like you really should be writing better and and you're not doing your job as well as you can be. Uh, so that that's not always the way that you feel, but you feel that way sometimes. But anyway, so I read this novel and I read it yesterday in its entirety. And it is just a gorgeous, gorgeous novel. It was so good that I forgot to be jealous of how talented this writer is and and just kind of sat there in awe. I, I literally read the book in one day, almost in one sitting. I started reading it at six o'clock yesterday morning and I just kept going until, you know, six or seven last night. I obviously did other things. I, I made a big, you know, it's a cold weather day. So I made a big lunch for Lawrence and me and we watched a movie and and so there there were a couple of breaks in there but for the most part I spent the day reading this book and I the point of all of this by the way is is not just to give you a window into what I am doing with my life but also to recommend that you read this book it's it's there's not a lot of plot to it it's about two sisters uh, whose mother dies and they end up being raised first by their grandmother uh, then by their grandmother's two sisters-in-law after the grandmother passes away and then finally by their aunt Sylvie who is their their deceased mother's sister and 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 Sylvie has been a drifter she's been a transient she's been riding the rails the the book is set in 1950s-ish I'm going to say either Idaho or Montana, probably Idaho, um, but but someplace near a very small town near a glacial lake. And just such incredible descriptions of this terrain, of this lake, of this of this country, this big sky country that, that they are living in. And just really, really exceptional prose. The prose that is so good that I am losing my own powers of eloquence and attempting to describe it. Although I, I will, and I never do this, but I, I will quote from a, another critics. I, of course, after I finished the book, I went online to see what other writers and critics have had to say about this book over the years. And one writer, Mark O'Connell, I, I, I thought this, he actually sums it up, at least the way that I felt about it perfectly, um, where he he's describing Marilyn Robinson as a writer. And he says, her voice is at once sad and ecstatic, conversationally fluent and formally precise. And it doesn't feel like a performance or a faint. It feels like wisdom. And and I think that probably really sums it up that that there is something so not just beautiful in the writing, but also wise. I, I, I feel like the person who wrote this book is incredibly wise. Like I want to travel. She lives in Iowa. She recently retired from teaching at the Creative Writing Workshop at the University of Iowa. And I feel like I want to travel to Iowa and sit at her feet and say, teach me what you know about life. <laughs> teach me what you know about people, not even about writing. Just it really just seems like like the work of such an incredibly wise and gentle and and 
insightful soul. And it, it's just a gorgeous book. And and so I guess I'm recommending that, that the point of this whole long tangent that I've gone on is that you should read this book if you are looking for your next great read. Again, there's not a lot of plot. So if you're the kind of person who really likes an action-adventure plot, this may not be the book for you. But if you are looking for just really gorgeous descriptions of natural surroundings and also just a very wise and insightful and sad and but moving and ultimately uplifting kind of story about people, insights into people, human nature, that kind of thing. I definitely recommend this book and I'm very much looking forward to diving into Gilead later on today. But before I do that, I am, of course, going to read to you from my own book, having just uh, given Marilyn Robinson that big buildup. I'm, I'm a little... uh a little a little abashed about presenting my own work, but I do know that I'm doing so to a friendly audience here, so thank you very much for that. But before we get to any of that, we have reached the point in the episode where I thank my Patreon supporters. And for those of you who don't remember or who are listening for the first time or who are not familiar with Patreon, um, Patreon, it's like the word patron with the letter E kind of stuck in the middle. And it creates, Patreon is a platform that creates an opportunity for people to become patrons of the art of creators whose work they admire. And so I do have a, a Patreon page and, and basically people can can pledge small amounts of money, anywhere from $3 a month on up to support my, my writing and my work and to help me continue to publish independently and to present this podcast free of any corporate sponsorship for which I am incredibly grateful. And in exchange for their support of my work, they get fun perks. They get bonus podcasts and never-before-published photos of Homer and the other cats, along with with stories about them that I have not published in my book, little just behind-the-scenes stories and glimpses at our lives, both as we are living them now and and as we did when Homer and the other cats, uh, my first-generation cats, were still alive, uh, things that I haven't published anyplace else, uh, there's also, you know, again, there, there's different levels, so there are different rewards. Um, I ha- do have a new book that is going to be out in just a few weeks, and I will be talking about that more as we get closer. And people, so some of the people on my Patreon page or part of my Patreon community will be getting their names and their cats' names featured in that book. Uh, but I do want to say that this this really is money that that keeps me going, that allows me to keep doing this work. And that also makes it possible for me to arrange fundraisers and other charitable drives for organizations whose work I care about or who are responding to events and and crises around the world. Cobble Small Animal Rescue, by the way, I am pleased to report, is going to be evacuating upwards of 120 dogs and 120 cats from Afghanistan to Canada, and some of those animals, I believe, will ultimately ultimately be coming to the United States. Uh, they are going to remain in operation in Afghanistan, so they themselves are not evacuating, but they are sending the first large round of cats and dogs over here. And and I am just so thrilled about that. I know that so many of you have been following the story anxiously for months now, since August. And again, we we as Homer's Heroes have played a, a very small part, but a still a part in helping to bring this about through our fundraising efforts. 
And I just feel incredibly grateful to my Patreon community for providing me with the luxury, basically, of, of being able to, of, of having the, the time and the ability to, to help coordinate large-scale response, or at least, you know, group responses. We are all stronger when we work together. And I am in the incredibly fortunate position of being able to do things like have this podcast, like organizing fundraising and letter writing campaigns, like being able to sell first edition autographed hardcover books and t-shirts and merchandise, and then donate all of the proceeds from those sales without having to worry uh, excessively, <laughs> not not worry at all, but without having to worry excessively about paying my own bills. And so this is why I'm so profoundly grateful to my Patreon community and to my supporters there and why I, why I encourage you, if you are listening and you like what I do and you are not already a part of my Patreon community, to head on over, check it out, see what's up and, and see how you can participate in 2022. We have so much fun stuff coming up and, and so many fun books uh, that, that I am planning to, I am publishing at least three books this year and I'm just very excited about it and would love for you to be a part of that. And you can find that by going to patreon.com and that's P is in Peter, A, T is in Thomas, R is in Robert, E, O, N is in Nancy, dot com slash Gwen Cooper, and that's all one word. Or you can just go to my website, www.gwencooper.com, and you can find links to it there. But today, right now, I am going to quickly thank uh, so one of the perks of being a part of my Patreon community is that you get name checked on my podcast at least once a month. And so this is not everybody. This is kind of the first third of my Patreon supporters. So if you are a Patreon supporter at the $5 level or higher and you do not hear your name today, you will hear it over the next couple of weeks. But I first want to give a massive shout out and thank you to Melanie Morningstar, Cami Tressler, Giselle Baxter. Let me get this list. Gina Woods Norris, Julie Lowe, Aislinn Benfield, Annalie Evans, Shelley Ratter, David Hepburn, Mary Wispy, Stephanie Rison, Andrea Kenner, Penny Nakutsu, Cindy Settle, Grace Brown, April Crawford, Nita Mercer, Anne Tetmeyer, Don Cole, Ronald Coltnow, Allison Amsterdam, Melissa Ratchko, Deborah Cab, Ken Kistner, Cynthia Erdley, Nancy Ross, Meg, last name withheld, Emily Safford, Jill Graves, Debbie Bradley, and Amy Neal. And as always, if I've mispronounced your name, please feel free to hit me with an email, gwen at gwencooper.com, letting me know that I have butchered the pronunciation of your name and how I may correct my error for the future. And a tremendous thank you to all of you. Again, I literally could not do this without you guys. And on that note, I'm going to take a short break for about 30 seconds or so. And when we come back, I will be reading a passage, a few pages from my life in a cat house. So sit back, get comfortable and stick around for more Curl Up With a Cat Tale.
so much for sticking around. So I'm going to be reading a, a, a short passage from My Life in a Cat House today. I, I don't know how many of you have read this book. I'm assuming most of you listening have read at least one of my books. And, and if it's only one, then it's probably Homer's Odyssey. Um, and if it's two, it's probably Homer's Odyssey and Love Saves the Day. But My Life in a Cat House is my most recently traditionally published book. And I'm going to be reading a section from a story called Them, a story in five parts. And this story, and some of you may have heard me talk about this before. Wait, excuse the sound. I'm just going to move the microphone a little closer to me. There we go. So uh, some of you may have heard me talk about this, but a few years ago, before we moved to our new home, uh, Lawrence and I discovered much to our horror that we had an infestation of clothing moths. And I discovered this one day quite by accident while I was taking out some winter clothes during the summer to have them prepare them to be cleaned ahead of winter and and found that moths had eaten their way through all of my my cashmere and wool sweaters that I'd just been collecting for years and years, expensive sweaters, uh, which is why I'd been collecting them for years. And and really that the moths had just gotten into everything. And I mean, we did eventually move. That That's when we more or less stopped seeing the moths was after we moved. That's how intense it was. But we, we did spend a lot of time and money and effort on dry cleaning and various anti-moth measures and precautions and and possibly the only real winners out of this whole thing were the cats because as we started sort of cleaning out drawers and and closets and more moths were flying around the house the cats who love chasing little flying things were were just having the greatest time trying to to catch moths and and helping me out you know a lot of it obviously we we worked with with an exterminator and various efforts to get rid of all the moths or as many moths as we could at once, but a significant part of our efforts also became hand-to-hand combat, i.e. just squishing moths wherever we happened to see them individually. And this is where the cats really excelled and really enjoyed helping me out and, and helping themselves out and having a good time. So uh, so this so this story, Them, a story in five parts, is a story about that moth infestation and the ways in which various members of our human and feline family reacted to the situation. And so this this part that I'm going to read now is from part four of the story in five parts, and it's called Ping. And basically that refers to um, in, in an attempt to, I was reaching up really high in an attempt to get a moth and I felt something in my back go, Ping. And and then my back was out and I was in bed for a couple of days, just flat on my back. And so this is, this part of the story deals with the cat's reaction to my being incapacitated in bed after a, a vigorous round of moth hunting. At the risk of making my cat sound heartless, it must be said that Clayton and Fanny are always positively elated when I'm sick enough to require a full day in bed. It's usually a cold or flu that takes me down, and the cats take great pleasure in requisitioning my heating pad to lie on, and my box of tissues to tear to shreds. The aspirin bottle I'll keep on the bedside night table for easy access makes a charming rattle when peremptorily swatted off the table to roll around on the floor, and no doubt, my cats must ask themselves whether it wouldn't be more sensible on their human's part to simply keep this enthralling cat toy easily accessible on the night table all the time. But the very best part of my being sick, from the cat's point of view, 
is that they get to join me in bed for a full day. Or if I'm really sick and the cats are really lucky, maybe even two full days. Clayton and Fanny are longtime practitioners of snooze all dayism, and they seem to regard my sick days as a possible and promising first step toward a permanent embrace of their lifestyle. They'll pile into bed with me and frequently on me, like senior members of a cult keeping close tabs on a new initiate, making sure she doesn't begin to have second thoughts or stray from the path. If they sense that I'm about to get out of bed, one or the other of them will climb onto my chest and bring a whiskered black face as close as possible to my own. You can't quit now, they always seem to be saying. You're doing so great. And if I'm sick enough to run a fever, so much the better. Burrowing under the blankets with me, they add the not insignificant warmth of their own furry bodies to my heightened body heat until the space between the covers b- begins to feel like a sauna, one that vibrates with the strength of my cat's purring contentment. The day that my back went out, however, wasn't quite like my usual sick days. For one thing, I had no interest in lying under the covers and had Lawrence shove them entirely to one side of the bed. Along with the piles of clothing, we were still cycling in and out of the laundry in an effort to rid ourselves of moths once and for all. Even worse, I never once turned onto my side for a delightful session of cuddling one or the other of my cats in a spoon position. I just lay there sprawled out, flat on my back, in a kind of Vitruvian man pose. I lay so flat that I couldn't even see the TV screen across the room or much of anything other than the ceiling. The number of moths we'd spot fluttering around the house had abated almost entirely, but from time to time over the course of that day, I'd spy one or two hovering above me. Fanny spotted them too and leapt onto my belly in order to use my motionless body as a springboard heavenward in her pursuit, each time prompting a loud oof from me. Convenient to launching Pat as my inert body made, it wasn't exactly Clayton's or Fanny's notion of the ideal day spent in bed with mom. Nevertheless, there was plenty to be happy about on any day that saw me spending so much time with them. And the heating pad had been duly taken down from its closet shelf and was turned over to Clayton or Fanny every 20 minutes or so, whenever I felt I'd used it long enough for the time being. That at least was something. The only real moment of consternation on that first day came in the evening when Lawrence helped me into a hot bath that I hoped would help soothe my knotted back muscles into something resembling their previous shape. Proper baths, as opposed to showers, are a rare event in our house, and Clayton and Fanny peeked anxiously over the side of the tub, occasionally daring to rise up on hind legs, or hind leg in Clayton's case, and dip a tentative front paw into the water before quickly withdrawing it. Their little brows furrowed in anxiety and confusion, What you to do in all that water, Mom? It's water. Eventually, however, having clearly concluded with a mental shrug that humans were just weird sometimes and there was no explaining them, they sprawled down in front of the tub like two ebony-carved centurions. Perhaps they decided that, with my having taken this foolishness into my head, someone had to make sure I didn't drown. In any case, their refusal to leave the tub area so long as I was still in there made Lawrence's job of getting me out of the tub a half hour later needlessly complicated. Just step around them, Lawrence kept saying patiently, while I, trying vainly to move sideways a leg that refused to go in any direction other than backward or forward, replied through gritted teeth, I can't step around anything. The cat seemed relieved as, with Lawrence's help, 
I finally hobbled back to the bedroom and the three of us settled into bed. They weren't nearly so sanguine, however, by the following morning. Like all cats, Fanny and Claytoner went into the routines that make up their typical day. One of the most important items on our daily agenda is when I get out of bed at 5 a.m. precisely and head down from the third floor bedroom to the first floor kitchen to give them their breakfast, tossing Clayton's toy mask for a few preliminary rounds of fetch along the way. Even when I'm down with a cold or flu, I still manage to sneeze and cough my way downstairs to feed the cats on time. So nothing in their previous experience had prepared them for that first morning after my back injury. The pain in my lower back did feel distinctly lessened when I initially woke up, although possibly that was the lingering effect of the Vicodin, left over from some dental surgery Lawrence had had a few months earlier, which I'd taken before going to sleep. Nevertheless, I couldn't sit up. I had to sort of rock from side to side until, eventually, I rolled out of bed and onto the floor in a semi-crouching position, at which point I stood up as straight as I was able and limped to the bathroom at the end of the hall. After that, staggering back to bed was all that I could manage. Walking down two flights of stairs to feed the cats, and then two flights back up again, was as unattainable a goal as climbing Everest. The cats appeared flabbergasted as I got back into bed without having fed them. Lawrence was sleeping in the guest bed in his office next door to allow me full and undisturbed span of our bed, and I'd advised him the night before to keep his door closed, anticipating that, when the cats found me unresponsive, they would be disinclined to wait for him to wake up on his own. There was a solid five minutes of counterwalling in the hallway as the cats did their best to rouse at least one of us, but Lawrence, a sound sleeper, kept dozing undisturbed. Thanks to his closed door, they were unable to deploy any of their more aggressive tactics, like stomping onto his chest and meowing loudly into his ear. They could, however, still use both maneuvers on me. Lawrence will be up soon, you guys, I assured them over the loud and increasingly desperate cries that were beginning to make my eardrums hurt. Although I knew that soon, given that Lawrence kept a much more normal schedule than I did, wouldn't be for at least two more hours. You'll get your breakfast. I promise you will. Vexed and baffled by this unprecedented state of affairs, they were obviously working hard to figure out a way of getting me onto my feet, down the stairs, and pointed in the direction of the pantry where their food was kept. Clayton seemed to be of the opinion that if he kept doing the things that he normally does in the morning, then inevitably I would also fall back into my normal routine. Accordingly, he kept bringing over the rattling toy mouse he likes to play fetch with, hauling himself up onto the bed so he could rattle it a few times in his mouth and then drop it into my hand. I would toss it half-heartedly as far across the room as I could without moving any more of my body than my arm. Clayton was patient with me at first as he dutifully retrieved the mouse, climbed back onto the bed, and dropped it into my hand once again. No, see, you're doing it wrong. You're supposed to get up and throw it for me, and then you're supposed to keep walking. After four or five repetitions, however, he was stumped. He looked over to Fanny for guidance. Got any ideas? Fanny's unquestionably the smarter of the two. She had evidently reasoned that I couldn't solve their problems until my own mysterious problem, whatever it was, had also been solved. She leapt nimbly from the bed, and I heard her descending the stairs. She returned a few moments later and, with the hunting cry that generally meant she was about to leave Lawrence or me a gift, usually Rosie the Rat, which she thoughtfully places on our pillows every night before bedtime, 
returned to my side and gently deposited a white plastic spoon on my stomach. She watched me expectantly for a few seconds, seemingly disappointed that her gift had produced no immediate effect beyond my saying, thank you, Fanny, and handing the spoon back to her. Undeterred, however, she departed again and returned with another white plastic spoon, and then, about three minutes later, with yet another. I'm still not sure what these plastic spoons symbolized to Fanny, or even where the stash of hers was being kept. Perhaps, I reasoned, trying to follow the logic, she knew that humans use spoons for eating and thought that if I ate something, I might be able to get up? Whatever effect she'd hoped the spoons might produce, when it failed to occur, she must have decided that a more drastic intervention was called for. It was perhaps a half hour later, and I just drifted back into sleep when I was roused once again by the sound of Fanny ascending the stairs with her hunting cry. I felt her land beside me on the bed, and she once again placed something on my belly. I blearily half-opened my eyes and raised my head as far as I could, without engaging any more of my beleaguered spine than the very top portion of my neck. It was hard to make out what it was at first, although, was I imagining it? Was whatever it was, moving? The room was still dark in the pre-dawn hours, so I switched on the bedside lamp. It took me a second to realize what it was, primarily because my brain, for a moment, flat out refused to confirm the report my eyes were sending. What Fanny had so lovingly deposited on my stomach was an enormous palmetto bug, otherwise known in the Northeast as a water bug, or simply a huge ugly cockroach, on its back and still alive as all six of its legs waved feebly in the air. Now, I was born and raised in South Florida. I've seen plenty of giant cockroaches in my day. I've seen, and dispatched without flinching, cockroaches so big you could have saddled and ridden them in the Kentucky Derby. I had even, once or twice, awakened with a kind of prickly sensation on my arm and realized it was just such a cockroach crawling across me. And, as would normally be the case in finding an enormous cockroach on my person, my instinctive first response, which, without thinking, I immediately undertook, was to attempt to bolt upright into a sitting position so as to dislodge the thing and get it off me. Except that I couldn't bolt upright. I couldn't sit upright at all. The instant and painful wrench I felt in my lower back as I tried to rise quickly, an effort that would end up costing me another two days in bed, was a forceful reminder of just how futile this attempt was. Son of a! I swore loudly as I fell back into a supine position. So there I was, flailing about helplessly on my back, while the giant cockroach in my belly was also flailing about helplessly on its back, the two of us acting out a scene from some cat and cockroach remake of Misery, in which Fanny was playing the Kathy Bates role, and either the cockroach, or I, or both of us, were James Kahn. Ultimately, the palmetto bug was more successful than I was, It soon righted itself and began a rapid scurry up my body in the general direction of my neck. I tried to brush it off with the back of my hand, but with a brief flutter of wings, it scuttled right over the top of my hand, down my palm, and, clearly as startled and disoriented as I was, continued its trajectory up my torso with an increased dash of frenzied speed. I had a friend in Miami who'd once awakened in the middle of the night to find that a palmetto bug had crawled into his ear 
and both his own and the cockroach's combined efforts had been unable to get it back out. He'd wound up in the emergency room, where the doctors irrigated his ear canal, effectively drowning the palmetto bug, while my friend was forced to listen to its excruciating death rows inside his own head. Before they were finally able to extract its corpse from his ear, chunk by chunk, with a small pair of forceps. This palmetto bug, the one that I was dealing with in the here and now, was closing the distance between itself and my chin at an alarmingly rapid pace. Lawrence! I shrieked. Lawrence! Fanny and Clayton, who'd been sitting next to me with an eager air this whole time, darted off and under the bed so quickly they practically left spinning dust clouds behind them. From the guest room, I heard the sound of feet hitting the hardwood floor and then a rapid thud of footsteps. In a flash, Lawrence was standing in the bedroom doorway, clad only in his boxer briefs, and brandishing the baseball bat he always kept next to him while he slept, a holdover from having first moved to New York in the 80s, at the height of the crack epidemic. So poised and ready did Lawrence look to club somebody bloody with that baseball bat that I had a wild, momentary fear he might use it on the cockroach while it was still on top of me. Get it off me, I whimpered, gesturing to the bug in my chest. Get it off me! Dropping the bat with a clatter and grabbing a handful of tissues from the box on our night table, Lawrence snatched up the hapless cockroach. He clenched his fist with a satisfying crunch and swept it from the room, the sound of the toilet flushing a moment later confirming that it had been given a burial at sea. How did it get all the way up here anyway? He asked as he returned to the bedroom. During the warmer months, we were usually good for one or two palmetto bugs a week squeezing into the basement-level kitchen through the French doors that led out to our tiny backyard. But the only time we ever saw one up on the third floor was in pieces, after Fanny had thoroughly mauled it and left its remains for us as an offering. Fanny brought it up, I confirmed. I think she thought she was helping. She didn't even eat any of it before she gave it to me. The thudding of my heart had finally slowed to its normal rhythms, and I smiled at Lawrence. That was damn manly, by the way, how you raced in here ready to beat an intruder to death to protect me. Lawrence smiled back. I probably would have tried to talk my way out of it first. Clayton and Fanny, having determined that the coast was clear, peeked out from beneath the bed's dust ruffle, then tentatively crept over to sit in front of Lawrence. They craned their necks to gaze up into his face, their yellow eyes wide and hopeful. You know, I suggested, as long as you're awake. Lawrence looked down at the cats. Come on, guys, he said, his tone resigned. Let's go get breakfast. Fanny gave Clayton a look that could only be described as triumphant. See, I knew I could get at least one of them out of bed. And that has been an excerpt from My Life in a Cat House, uh, the story Them, a story in five parts. And this has been another episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. Thanks so much for joining me. And don't forget to tune in next week for another all new episode. And that concludes this episode of Curl Up with a Cat Tale with Gwen Cooper. Don't forget to invite your feline loving friends to listen to new episodes along with you. If you'd like to subscribe to this podcast, find out how to get your name and your cat's name included in my next book, or leave comments or questions for me to answer in future podcasts, head on over to GwenCooper.com now. Thanks so much for joining me, and don't forget to hug your cat today.